Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 8, Into Exile. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 of Season 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, if you're already on the way with us, welcome back. I've missed you, friend. Here is today's story. Now, there are still plenty of folks left in the land formerly known as Israel. The Book of Kings is rather general in relating the second exile, noting simply that the captain of the Babylonian forces carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. That's 2 Kings 25.1. Jeremiah, however, provides the details, complete with a summary accounting of how many were taken into exile in each episode, starting with Jehoiakim's surrender, 3,023 taken into exile, then noting that 832 were carted off now, 11 years later, those spared and not executed in reaction to Zedekiah's rebellion. Six years after that, when the Babylonian captain heads home for good, he takes a few hundred more. Don't hurt yourself, and just round all that up to a bit under 5,000 Hebrews over in Babylon. Look further in Jeremiah 52:28, which includes a final scouring by the captain of the guard on his return home six years after the second deportation. 5,000 is about the size of the current population of Buffalo, Wyoming, who are all fine individuals, mostly, but that's not a lot of people. The deported exiles are the movers and the shakers, or were just a short time ago. But those left behind lack the position or skill set that would warrant the effort of exile. There are clearly way more people left behind than taken away, and those folks are people too. In fact, I am totally ready to start over with them if they're willing, but of course, they're not. Here's how that plays out. Nebuchadnezzar has actually placed quite a decent fellow, Gedaliah, in the role of governor over the lesser left-behind Hebrews in Babylon's new territory, formerly known as Israel. Jeremiah 47 refers to men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land, who had not been carried into exile to Babylon. Gedaliah is the grandson of Shaphan, who, we'll remind you, was the secretary to Josiah that did the all-important reading of our law that fateful day. Shaphan is also, not surprisingly, a big supporter of Jeremiah. Likewise, Shaphan's son, making him Gedaliah's dad, Ahikam, is noted as having shielded Jeremiah from capture and death. That's in Jeremiah 26:24. So, Gedaliah, which means Yahweh is great in Hebrew, another excellent name with the catchy Gedi as its short form. Gedi is good people, and he governs well. Jeremiah is given his choice of where to go. 
The Babylonian captain promises the prophet that if he chooses to travel back to Babylon with him, Jeremiah will be well cared for over there, where he would undoubtedly continue to rail against the relocated upper Hebrew crust. Or he can move less than ten miles to the north to counsel the new governor in Mizpah, a Jerusalem's no longer fit to live in. A Mizpah was one of good King Asa's building projects in 1 Kings 15.22. If neither of those options are to Jeremiah's liking, he's given permission to go anywhere else he fancies, so trusted is the prophet by the Babylonian captain. The captain who knows that all that's just transpired has been by our command. This captain even says, Yahweh your God decreed this disaster for this place, and now Yahweh has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would. All this happened because you people sinned against Yahweh and did not obey him. Yep, Jeremiah 40, 2 and 3. Jeremiah chooses to stand with Gedaliah and moves to the governor's modest capital so that he can serve as our voice to the remaining remnant. 2 Kings 25-22 sketches a brief summary of Israel's soldiers that had been scattered about Judah rallying to Gedaliah. Jeremiah provides a breezier narrative of all the Judeans who'd fled capture to Moab and Edom and other lands heading to Mizpah. Since Gedaliah is apportioning to the remaining peasants all the land whose farm and vineyard owners are in exile, these peasants are as eager to gain a new homestead as in the land rush days of North America. Only, instead of claiming bare land, they're getting ready-made farms and estates. Jeremiah notes that their hopes are well-founded, as Gedaliah tells them to harvest the wine, summer fruit, and olive oil, and to put them in your storage jars and live in the towns you have taken over. In a matter of months, they are doing that very thing, and they harvested an abundance of wine and summer fruit. Jeremiah 40, 10 through 12. There's a fly in the olive oil, though, and his name is Ishmael. He is not a descendant of that first Ishmael way back from Abraham's union with Hagar. Rather, he is a descendant of Isaac, and even somehow connected to the royal line, though Jeremiah and the writer of Kings think so little of this Ishmael that they give him a genealogy so sparse, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, who was of royal blood in 2 Kings 25.25. Jeremiah adds, one of the king's officers, meaning Zedekiah in Jeremiah 41.1. So this Ishmael's genealogy is so sparse you can't tell how he has any royal claim. If there is any of the blood of kings in his veins, it's of the wicked ones. Ishmael is jealous and murderous. He is not nobly chagrined by Gedaliah's outright cooperation with and advocacy for the Babylonian government. Ishmael's feelings are hurt that as a distant member of the royal family, he wasn't given Gedaliah's post. 
though it's safe to assume that after Zedekiah's shenanigans, Nebuchadnezzar has had enough of the family royal. The good but naive governor Gedaliah is warned of a plot by Ishmael, who is in cahoots with the Ammonite king Baalis. Just lovely. Somehow Baalis and Ishmael seem to think Nebuchadnezzar will let anyone just stroll in, kill his governor, and take for himself the land Babylon has just conquered. Gedaliah has governed well, but only for seven months at this point. So preposterous is the thought of such a plot that Gedaliah dismisses the warnings of Johanan, the commander of what remains of the nation's sparse military forces that have come together from out in the open country. No, instead of heeding Johanan's warning, when Ishmael shows up in Mizpah along with ten men, gullible Gedaliah invites them over for supper. And Ishmael and his men kill the trusting governor as well as the Judeans that are with him, along with the handful of Babylonian soldiers that are stationed there, caught unawares by such an unthinkable and dishonorable move. When scores of unsuspecting pilgrims show up the next day bringing sacrifices to make to us, Ishmael murders most of them and tosses their corpses in a cistern dating back to King Asa's days. Ten pilgrims are spared when they tell the deceitful, greedy murderer that if he lets them live, they'll show him where they've got grain, oil, and honey hidden outside town. To finish his campaign, indecorous Ishmael takes captive everyone left in Mizpah, including the daughters of Zedekiah, whom Babylon had habitually not thought worth carrying into exile. Ishmael heads back with his hostages toward Baalis and the Ammonites. Jeremiah sees it all and records it in chapter 41, while Kings dismisses Ishmael with a single sentence. You'll have to look it up yourself at 2 Kings 25.25. 25. Thanks to Jeremiah, we know, well, of course we know, but now you know too. You know that Johanan and the forces with him, who are bivouacked outside Mizpah, get wind of Ishmael's crimes and pursue him, catching up with him just a stone's throw away from Mizpah at Gibeon. It turns out that, in addition to his other charming qualities, Ishmael's also a coward. For when the happy cry goes up from his hostages when they see Johanan and his men coming, Ishmael bolts away, leaving his captives behind, never to be heard from again. And so we've got this band of leftover Israelites here. Johanan and his soldiers, plus the women, children, and court officials he had recovered from Gibeon. That's in Jeremiah 41.16. And they're certain that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be mighty angry when he hears his governor's been murdered. And they're certain that Nebuchadnezzar is going to take that anger out on whoever's left. Here's where we finally come to the crux of this episode, because in their fear of Babylonian reprisals, Johanan and this group of leftovers decide they'd better head for Egypt for protection from Nebuchadnezzar's certain wrath. 
To their credit, they notice our prophet Jeremiah is still handily around and approach him for counsel from us, pronouncing, Pray that Yahweh your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. What an excellent request! Do take note. Uh, don't read too much into this your God instead of our God here, as if the people are so detached from their identification as our people that they now see me as Jeremiah's God and not their own. They'll switch to our in a few sentences, Jeremiah 42.6. This is more along the lines of, Hey, could you talk to your boss for us, Jeremiah? After a full ten-day wait, a time conveying the completeness of the wisdom we are about to share, we speak to Jeremiah our words for Johanan and the remnant with him. Remnant is an intentionally charged word at this point. Stay here, and I will protect and bless you in abundance. You will be the remnant with whom I start over. If you go down to Egypt... All the things you now fear will come upon you there. Summarizing Jeremiah 42, 10-18 And so, once again, the fact that you've not heard of Johanan tells you what his and the people's choice is. If they stay and become our Alpha team to walk the next steps on the Abra plan, they go down in history, and he'd sound more familiar. Instead, they go to Egypt and force Jeremiah and his trusty aide Baruch to go along. Kings sends them away with, At this, all the people from the least to the greatest, together with the army officers, fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. 2 Kings 25-26 After this, they are not mentioned again in King which has but one last tale to tell at this point. Jeremiah, obliged to go along for the ride, of course continues his account and warns the people against this move throughout, saying that although Nebuchadnezzar would have left them alone back home, he'll soon be striking out at Egypt. Their new neighborhood is a death trap. The people not only fail to listen to Jeremiah, but also quickly fall into worship of the neighborhood Egyptian gods, even attributing their downfall to not worshiping the fertility goddess, the queen of heaven, enough, as if we didn't exist at all. Jeremiah spends three full chapters on this shift to Egypt, reminding the people that it was their devotion to these other gods that brought calamity upon Judah. Jeremiah 41.20 Their insistent persistence in worshipping other gods will have the same effect upon them in Egypt as Jeremiah forecasts the coming invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. Who will treat Pharaoh Hophra? as Zedekiah was treated. This gives way to a paean of prophecy in Jeremiah's final chapters, dramatically predicting the judgment of Egypt and the usual suspects, Philistines, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, and so on, ending in the climax of even Babylon's demise. For there is only one king. 
Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support us, spread the word. Give us a review on iTunes or Facebook. Then share a link to episode one with your friends. We hope our time together today has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And be good to yourself.